Talking with Talk is Jericho's The Pot of Thunder and Rock and Roll, and it's Friday, so let's go to the Duff McKagan joke of the week. Chris Jericho, Duff McKagan calling you. Hey, listen, I just applied for a new job, uh, hanging mirrors. Yeah, it's something I could see myself doing. Thank you very much. Goodbye. <laughs> Uh, keep your day job, Jeff. Uh, not because we don't like your jokes, because we love Guns N' Roses as well. But keep sending them, even when they're stinkers. But one uh, thing that's not going to be stinkers, William Regal making his highly anticipated return. One of the highest rated episodes in Talk is Jericho history was part one. But this time, it's a little bit more uh, of a lighter fare, talking all about the British wrestling scene and the uh, guys who influenced and taught him when he was getting started in the business. He's got great stories about Shirley Crabtree, a.k.a. Big Daddy, Giant Haystacks, who uh, Regal wrestled a lot and even traveled with. Also, Les Thornton, the man who shouldn't be named, Sid Cooper. He remembers Tiger Mask coming to Britain for the first time and what he learned and took back to Japan. William talks about his early days work in the holiday camps, his first trip overseas. He gives a lesson, lesson in British slang and the British spots that continue to influence guys to this day, like the Dick Byer spot, the Tony Charles, the International. He shares stories from his WWE days about Brian Danielson and John Moxley, who he is currently with, the Blackpool Combat Club. It's a great conversation. It's coming up. So is Fozzie's show at the Sherman Theater in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. That's tonight, Friday, April 15th. This place is going to be packed. We're playing songs from upcoming album Boombox. It's going to be out May 6th, wherever you buy and stream music. And the Save the World Tour is still rolling. Come out and hang with us uh, April 16th in Wilmington at the Queen. That's Delaware. Uh, April 17th, Poughkeepsie at the Chance. April 18th, Monday, Leesburg, Virginia at the Tally Ho Theater. So many more dates. Just go to FozzyRock.com for all ticket information and VIP meet and greet information as well. It's one of the best in the business. And don't forget to book your cabin for Chris Jericho's Rock and Wrestling Rager at Sea. The Four Leaf Clover was set in sale February 2nd, 2023. We've got a great lineup of talent joining us. For the first time ever, we're going to our own private island, Grand Stirrup Key. Come experience the vacation of a lifetime. ChrisJerichoCruise.com. All right. It's a long-awaited, much-anticipated William Regal Part 2 right here, right now on Talk is Jericho. All right. So one of the um, most talked-about episodes of Talk is Jericho was with uh, William Regal. This is Part 2. People have been waiting for it. I've been getting asked about it. And obviously, um, your story was unbelievable. I think people were riveted by it. And uh, with all the trials and tribulations we went through, which was a very emotional show, I wanted to kind of show the other side of you, which is the fun and also historical oh, side. You've got so oh, much history yeah. here, right? <laughs> right, so you're not going to have me a blubbering wreck. Because you you old man me last time. Let's let's let everybody know this. There's an old term in wrestling called old manning somebody. This is a lost term where, if you know somebody's coming in there, you you out out you, you do something to nobble them. And you did that to me. You got me an emotional wreck. So my first night out, I go out and I, I can't hit me. I'm just mumbling out there and crying and don't know what's going on. Good, you you just smart. So, so smart. Blaming, you, you've learned a few tricks over the years, haven't you? You're blaming me for you missing your time. <laughs> Dynamite, that's a good excuse. <laughs> <laughs> Had me a complete emotional wreck, you did. First of all, I mean, we're three weeks in now, and you've got this great yeah. thing going with uh, with Mox and Danielson. The black oh, very fortunate. Black well, black. well, well. Yeah. I mean, this has just been gone through the roof. It was just, it just fits so perfectly. Were you expecting this? Did no. You- <laughs> <laughs> when I was asked to come here, it's like, can you just give me a, like a month to get my legs underneath me a little bit? And I, you know, I'm like, I can't help but wrestling my wrestling brain and i'm trying to get it up to i don't feel like it's up 
to where it needs to be. But it's getting there. But it's just figuring, I'm in a new company and I'm, you know, there's a lot of things, that, I'll be honest about this. When you come in here, I've just been in the job that I've been in. You've got to come in here and you've got to go, what's everybody going to think, right? Or do they think I'm going to be a direct hotline back to the old company, which is not my way. And I think enough people know me to know that. I, my word's my word and I come in here and I work here now. So it's just... It, it's just a lot of things that you, I, I'm, I'd rather people hear this because it's just, if you think it ever gets any better, you know this, it's not, this job is a lifestyle, it's not a clock on job, you've got to, so you, we still think about the, you know, whether it be stuff in the ring, so I'm getting used to being, William Regal is an act that has come after all these years, and even before wrestling because of influences, you've got, we've all got our influences. And William Regal is a, is a product of that, right? And it's just, the, the act grows. But I've been in a different role for the last whatever amount of years on TV. I've just been out to strictly deliver messages and, and be a, a straight act, basically, apart from once a year. It's general you know, manager. General manager there, thing, which, you know, yes. Like so I'm just getting used to that. I'm out there. There's all this energy going on here, which I love. I love being around young talent that want to, get better at this I love watching I love wrestling as long as there's effort right as long as there's effort I'll, I don't care you know different when I what you work for different companies you do what they want to do well I, I like wrestling and as long as people have put effort in I love it it's just whatever it's all different we talked about that last time so I'm just trying to get my feet under me but I get put in I, I'm fortunate enough you're in with these fellas getting told that was why I was coming in was one thing but actually oh wow wow this is we're not giving that away here, but I'm just watching what's going on. And it's like, it's mind-blowing. You know, like, and I'm sat and I'm, I'm like getting giddy over it again. This is, you couldn't ask for anything better, that you've got the, the freedom to just be me again and have my little nuances and little twitches and ticks and stuff when I'm out there or just talking and, oh, right, I can just, which I go all over the place. I don't know, no idea where I'm going to go when I go out there with, same when I used to work. You know, over the years, you sat trying. I haven't wrestled for such a long time, but basically, although I don't, I'm not a jazz music fan. I like listening to it live, but I was a jazz wrestler. Yeah. I just used to go out there and go wherever it went. Well, now I'm. I've got that freedom to do that again, and to absolutely, I couldn't be in there with any, and the people around me better. Than, the, the greatest thing I could be involved in not overshadow it, not try and take away, but it, it's like, it's fantastic just to have all this. I, I, I can't, I hope that's coming across part right. Of the act now. Part of the act. And, and it's, it's the perfect wow, casting. Yeah. Well, I, that's if, the way to put it. what's so good about it? And again, it's, it's all just fortunate things, right? Me and you have lived through a lot, so things come up. It's all, there's a reality to it all. And so you can't beat that. Because when you've got things you can dip into, one day in, in, 10 years time you could actually put a piece together that would go wow this is these things all because that's what's going through my mind you know the stuff with Brian for 21 22 years now it's 22 years last month since oh, this month sorry since I've 22 years since I first met him thing with John's 12 like 11 years ago 12 years ago do you know the story about when he first came to FCW John not really okay so I that was before I had the opportunity to uh, involved in hiring anybody. There was two people when I got there that I knew 
before anybody knew that things were changing in the WWE. Again, that was with, with H. And he'd asked me to do that job. Nobody else seemed to know. We went to FCW and it was like reckoning day. They, oh, he's in charge of this now and I, I'm going to be doing this. And there was a showcase. I believe, I, I don't know, but I don't think the person who was hiring them before would, would have hired Seth Rollins or John Moxley. I think it was Joey Mercury because he was already working there. Because there's no way that they would, that I know what their, their kind of mentality was. Is yeah, this fella hasn't worked there for ten years, right. but at the time, I don't know if you you, you might not yeah. even know his name, but he was a fella. He just, and he was like, no, that's not his game. That's somebody else who watches independent wrestling. So I I already knew, you know, get me foot in the the door of of wrestling the whole time, and so I get there. John's only just got there. Now it used to take a month before anybody knew your name yeah. because it's just the way it is, you know. It's, it's the way it is anywhere. It's There's like so I, many people. In so FW many. Too. Well, the, maybe forty or fifty at yeah. the time, but it was a small build. It was great. It was fantastic. Steve Kern, I was giving him a thanks because he was he had a great thing going there. Norman was there and Billy and so they put on a showcase for H, and I'm sat there with him, and they all did matches and they all did promos and then they said. Uh, is there anybody who wants to say anything? Now, I'd seen John do a lot of promos. Like you, that's our game, right? I'd heard about how good this fellow was, so I'd looked him up and I, I'd gone, wow. And I said, can we see John Moxley? And the people who were there at the time were going, who, 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 who? And he was just sat in, right in the corner. <laughs> now, as soon as this come out of my mouth, I'm thinking, this is day one on the job here. I hope he's as good as I think he is. And he got in the ring and he didn't look like he looks now. He was thin and he had a denim jacket on, jeans. And, yeah, and just, he got in the ring and he, they went, right, one minute, and he started. And within 10 seconds, there was a relief came over me of, he is that good. In 20 seconds, I looked across at H and he looked at me and he, he rubbed his forearm like the airs are standing up on the back of my phone. And then, again, it used to take a long while to get in before you could get on TV. The next week we were doing TV and I was doing the commentating. I'd been doing it for about a year. We did tape three tapings. He was on the first one doing a promo, John. He was on the second one doing an enhancement match and he was on the third taping doing another promo. And that's a lesson hopefully that people take from that is you need to work on all your game. Everything in wrestling is a constant thing but that promo ability can get you noticed instantly. That's that lesson to take from that. If you're not working on that, and you know, I've, from day one I met you, you've, you've done a lot of that, or you whatever you did, that's what can get you noticed very quickly. It got me, once I got comfortable, wrestling got me to America, but the wrestling wasn't working. I, got the, I had to work on the talking and, and the character. That promo stuff can get you noticed instantly. You mentioned William Regal, the character, was influenced by many, and I'm assuming most was wrestling? A lot of it is wrestling, and just growing up with the the entertainment that was on TV. I mean, I, I'm a strange Englishman. I don't like football, and I don't drink tea in real life, believe it or not. Um, I don't I don't watch any sports. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I listen to all soul music, and I play with me lizards. That's it. I, I have a, but I always loved 
entertainment shows on TV, comedians, or whatever. And so that we've talked about this on your last time I was on your show years ago, different things. But wrestling, from four years of age, um, it's now termed world of sport, the British wrestling. But it actually was just wrestling. There was a show called World of Sport that ran from midday till 5 30 and five hours long yes oh, but see. it was just different gotcha, sports gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. and then wrestling was on at four o'clock till i think it was either people think it was an hour I think it was it was 50 minutes and then they would do the soccer scores after that and if you actually watch a lot of old british wrestling that's on youtube it'll come up Manchester United won on, on the bottom because it was it was like like the wrestling was taped from sometimes occasionally it was live from for different major major shows but it was taped it come up on the bottom of the score so people, uh, now that I've said that I know there's a lot of people young people like to watch that stuff and learn but they might find that interesting it's Manchester United won leads two you know whatever it may be so I was watching that for my earliest memories my mom left when I was seven. I lived in a house, and so it was just me and my dad, but I lived in a house that was 50 yards, my dad built, that was 50 yards from the house that he was born in. And I was with my granddad, I, I, I've said this before, but I was with my granddad. So that was my thing, sat on his knee at four years of age, we watched wrestling. And until I was 10, I loved all the character villains. <laughs> I didn't really know what a good wrestler was, which is another learning tool for people. That's if you can find a mix of all of it, you need a bit of whatever connects. We've talked about that with your audience. Character villains. Well, the biggest villain at the time was Mick McManus. I, I love Mick McManus. Um, he wasn't so much a character villain, but there was a, a fella called Cyanide Sid Cooper who was at the top of the list of people who influenced me really in a lot of the character things that I did later on in my career. Um, unfortunately, Sid passed away last year. Sid was, I can't explain it, it was just a one-man show, a whirlwind of, he was so comfortable with himself, he was an incredible villain, really good wrestler, but would fall on his backside for anybody, but knew how to turn it around, he would have me as a child, laughing one minute, screaming the next, one, just a complete roller coaster of emotion watching him. There's a lot of stories about, so Sid, I got, I, I got to wrestle him a lot when I was in my teens, so, so I wrestled him a lot when I was in my teens. This is just a little story you of Sid. The, you were the, the hot young baby face. I wouldn't say hot, no, no. <laughs> there was, all my peers were all far better than me. All the people of my age group, I was, really slow learner at this and I just persevered and slowly and, and, and I've said it before because I was born at the right time and I was around the right wrestlers that were right. better than me and to wrestle them so many times and I grew to being six foot three and became an heavyweight by the time I was 19 and by 20 I was getting could because of Dave Taylor Pete Roberts right. Terry Rudge got me out of the country and I traveled the world Let's go back to Sid so Sid so Sid, I'm going to go forward a bit to go back. I worked with Sid a lot when I was a teenager, 18. But then once I got to 19, I was heavyweight. So I was wrestling mostly heavyweights or heavy middleweights. When I was about 20-something, when I was traveling the world, 22-something, I, I didn't wrestle much in England for, for, from 20 to 24. Maybe two months of the year, top max. The rest of it was, as you know, because you were doing the same, going to different countries. 
Well, I turn up at a show. I, I happen to be doing a show for All Star for Brian Dixon, and, and I turn up, and there's nobody else there. And I should have been on with whoever, whichever, every way. There's me and Sid there. Brian said, Can you go on with Sid? Now, Sid's come on to me. Sid was a, I would say he was a middleweight, because there were strict weight classes in yeah. Britain, right? And he came up and he went, Right, Darren, now I know you're a big lad, and I know you're going to Germany and you're doing all that heavyweight stuff, but you got enough to sell for old Sid, aren't you? you got enough to sell for Sid. And I went, of course I am, Sid, of course I am. He went, now you're going to sell for me, aren't you? You're going to sell for me. So that was all he said. And then he'd go away, he'd come back, you know, hello, Dad, you're going to sell for me, aren't you? You're going to sell. You're not too big to sell. I said, of course, Sid, of course not. You know, and I'm like, no, I'm, I'm, re I'm getting overly humble. Like, like no, of course not. Now, I know you've got all them muscles now and you're big and uh, no, you're going to sell for me, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. So, of course I am, Sid. We go in the ring. Now, Sid's about five foot seven and, and about 170 pounds. Right? I'm at the time 22, six foot three, and when I was looked like a bodybuilder, you know, um, about 18 stone, about 260 or whatever I am, right? Well, so I'm going in smiling because I'm on with Sid and watching him do his stuff, which is like getting in the ring. And he, this is how good Sid was. Max Crabtree, the promoter, trying to prove a point to everybody that this is what a good pro can do. And Sid was the ultimate pro. He saw an old lady's manky old fur coat in a dumpster. This is the promoter. He took this fur coat, cut the sleeves off it. He gave it to Sid with a bit of string. He said, Sid, I want you to basically go out and sh show all the, everybody what it, how you can make something work, is, is really the story to this. Sid, if you watch a lot of old, there's a lot on YouTube, he walks in, he put this fur coat, this old, and it's a manky, dirty, filthy old thing with a piece of rope to tie it up. Mm. He walked into the ring like that, that coat cost $10,000 and he made it work. And there's, there was lessons like that. I was getting taught constantly without realizing or, or knowing it. And, and like, yeah, anything. And he was so comfortable with himself and he was a proper, proper tough guy. He's the only fella in the history of that. There's, there's a lot of, different gyms that Wigan gets talked about a lot, but there was the uh, gym in Bradford where Dave Taylor's dad went, who was the man, right? When it come to all that stuff. We'll get to that in a bit with Sid, because there's a lot with Sid. Sid got broke into the business by Dave's dad. Sid had to live with Dave Taylor, because Dave Taylor's dad had a farm, a pig farm. Mm. Part of his, to get into the business, work on the pig farm for free and get hammered smashed the smashed the pieces down at the amateur gym and then whatever else because Sid was an amateur wrestler there but then once you got in the pro job get hammered never they could never make him submit and and the only reason they didn't break anything is because Dave's dad had a conscience and wouldn't take it that far but used to get that frustrated because he couldn't make Sid submit he would just would not submit on anything and he was like if I so he he had a conscience and wouldn't take it that far but I mean, just would not give up. So Dave, as a, as a little kid, and all his brothers, poor Sid had to, you know what Dave's like, when he's, he was like that, imagine what he was like when he's eight. They're all monsters, right? Four of them were monsters. Sid, poor Sid, had like 
18 had to babysit them all and stuff and they're just smashing and it running up Dave shot him once with a pellet gun a B, you call it a BB, BB gun, gun yeah. he just run up to him when he was nine like Sid's 18 or so put the BB gun right next to his chest and shot him in the chest I mean just he, this poor fella had to go through everything else to get into this business because that was the way it was then right so Sid's got a, he's not he's got cauliflowered nose ears everything but tough as nails right so one of the regular stories with Dave, Dave, Dave's told me that they'd be sat around the, the, the kitchen table in the in, like big wooden table, four brothers, Dave's mom and dad, Sid. And Dave said, I always knew, even as a kid, he didn't know, you know Dave was amateur wrestler, his dad never talked about pro wrestling. That was, you know, it was very strict. Come back from the gym and he, he said, I could see my dad was just, just fuming and found out later on, because he couldn't make Sid submit. He wouldn't submit. He said, many times, he said, I've just been sat there. And he said, my dad's just sat there stewing. He's finished his dinner, grabbed the plate and smashed it over Sid's head and dove on him. He said, like, and then they're rolling about on the floor and he's going, submit like, no, no, I won't, I won't. And Dave's mom's hitting his dad with a broom and that, get off him, leave him alone. Like, it's just kind of all mad stories that Dave had about why Sid. So Sid's as hard as iron. So back to me being 22. I'm, I've worked with Sid when I was younger. I'm back wrestling him again. You're going to sell for me, Darren. You're going to sell for me. Of course I am. Of course I am, Sid. We get in the ring and I'm, I'm just j overjoyed, right, that I'm, 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 I'm back. I never thought I'd wrestle Sid again and he, I just loved him to death because he was such a great fella. Get in there. First thing he does, he headmares me. As I go to get up, he just knees me as hard as he can in, in the ear. My ear goes black and he just goes, <laughs> and just laughs. And so... <laughs> And knowing that I was probably going to, but I couldn't, I was just laughing like I, like I wanted to just, if it had been anybody else, I'd have jumped up and smashed the hell out of him. But he just, I mean, black, all my ear was black for like a month. It was all like swollen and that. And he just laughed yeah, like that. But Sid was a, just a wonderful character uh, and could make anybody up and down look, look like a million dollars and fall on his back. And that's another trick I learned. When you watch somebody who's really comfortable and not out to act like a tough guy, you can fall on your backside and turn that round and make that humiliation into heat, mm -hmm. which is something I used to do a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, I never did it on TV because it was one. Is, I'm giving all a few things away here, but I used to look at. I used to do a lot of stuff, and you know, because I've wrestled you on TV and I've wrestled you different, very differently on, or do a lot of. I have. I used to have a lot of the same things that I could put in at any time. Yeah. I used to do that. You purposely humiliate myself. Have you drop kick me all over the place, bounce me all over, take a walk, have the referee do a count, get to about an eight and me like panic and run back in and then come underneath the bottom rope and trip on the bottom rope, smash my nose on the floor, make a big production out of it. Have you bounce me all over again? And then I would cheat, cut you off and then I would turn it round on somebody. And then I would look at people in the, on the third row. You were laughing at me a second ago and why I was kneeing you in the head. Not at that used to get to people on a different level. Not take, not only taking it out on you, but looking at them, going, like basically saying, and sometimes saying it to them. I wish this was you, because you were laughing at me. But he's going to get it now. This is your fault. And this is your fault for laughing. I'm taking it out on him. And it's like, I learned a lot of that watching these fellows when I was younger, right? And it's, it's, that's why I, I, I would do the most outrageous things. But I, if you actually watch the follow through of it, I always got it. 
from it on the other side. Well, I learned that watching Sid, and I learned that what there was. A, there was a lot of people like that, but mostly Sid was the one that got to me like that. And then being around all them fellas, you hear nothing but stories about older wrestlers that I, I might, which I did. I'm going to tell you another story because it involves Daniel Bryan. Uh, sorry, Brian Danielson. I had to care. I'm trying to remember. So I met this fella called Joe Cornelius, who was a very famous wrestler in the 50s and 60s, very famous in Britain and, and Europe. And his nickname was The Dazzler. Now, I don't know if you remember, when for a while, Brian in WWE was doing this silly little thing. Right, well, he, this, is, this is why. <laughs> this is the story why. So... I used to wear, again, I, I, you'd hear off these old wrestlers, as, and I bring him up a lot, a fella called Terry Rudge, who was very instrumental in, in a lot of things with me. My style, by wrestling him, made me the wrestler I was, got me booked in different countries, and we went a lot of places together, and he was a character of the highest, he was just a wonderful fella. Shakespearean actor, he was a renaissance man, really. He owned an antique shop in the... Same town where Prince Charles uh, lives. It just, yeah. but a, just a wonder, but a proper, the, the real deal, uh, you know. So he told me this story. Again, it's a story, everybody tells it a different way, right? Is it, might not even be like this, in, what really happened, but the way out, this is how I heard it. So there's a lot of us British wrestlers, the older ones, you will. You look at us and you go, ooh, they're a right handful, right? Me, Fit, Dave, all that, you know, the fellas that come over here, look, which we can be. But we all call, call each other dear and darling and love. And it's just like, it, it's just a thing. We yeah. just, it's like second nature. It was just yeah. like a, and it comes from a, a, of old theatrical things of just us, like what we do out there, but backstage is like a, an in-joke kind of thing. We just... So we are. We're all theatricals. It's, it's just a oh, keep that thought. Yeah, yeah. So here's another story with Sid. Here's one Sid told me. So Sid, Sid Cooper, one day they're in uh, Worthing in on the south coast of England, and and there's where the it's like two. There's a theatre and a, a little building next to it, and he used to do a show there. Holds about four hundred people. Well, one night it was summer. It was only 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 ever ran in the summer. Sid has just had his match and sweating and he's, he's come out the back doors to get some, it's right on the seafront, get some sea air. And there's a play on next door and it's like some, you know, Oscar Wilde play or something. And there's this old theatrical actor come out and he's got a smoking jacket on and a, and a, a cravat and he's got a cigarette holder, you know, like with a, and he's come out and he said, oh, hello, darling. Sid, Sid said, all right, how you doing? He said, uh, yes, he said, you wrestling guy. He said, yeah, yeah. And this is a great line. This, <laughs> this, this whole theatrical said to Sid, and when are you treading the boards again, dear? <laughs> Which I, I love that saying. Right? <laughs> so that's why a lot of the, these things. Anyway, back to back Terry Rudge. So Terry told me this story about Joe Cornelius. I told it to Brian. Brian took the name of the Dazzler. Yeah. So in the 60s, there's a promoter called Jack Dale who was an Olympian, very famous promoter. Now he's walked in the dressing room and there's all these big burly men, which they were in those days, you know, cauliflower ears, broken noses and that, and they're all, 
he's walked in and they're all just getting to the show and they're all going, hello, dear, hello, darling. And he's throwing a tantrum, right? What is the matter with you? Could you imagine if those fans out there could hear you? Big, tough fellas like you, you're supposed to be men. You're supposed to be proper men. Lovey, darling, what's all this nonsense? About? You what's the matter with you? So he's cutting this huge big promo on all these fellas that all stood there. Right as he's finished his rant, Joe Cornelius has come through the door, swung the door open, he's got a full-length fur coat on, a big hand-stitched leather bag, he's dropped it on the floor, flung his arms in the air and said, who wants to be the first to give the Dazzler a kiss on the lips? <laughs> so so <laughs> I told Brian that. Brian took the name the Dazzler because he thought it was funny and so that's where that stuff that when he was a Dazzler. So, yeah. Oh my God. That, that's like, I used to, I'm sure you had plenty of them for, from Calgary, right? Because there was always... That's kind uh, of the, right. the theme of the business. Because I know yeah. some of the fellas that went to Calgary and they were all people that, that were characters. Mm -hmm. You know, like John Foley and people. I, I didn't know him, but I knew, you know, I knew about him. And I used to hear these stories of him. I know Ivan Penzikoff was their referee and I used to hear like well, loads had, of stories big, about him. a big pipeline between yeah. them. I mean, that's where Dynamite yes, and yeah, yeah, yeah. also Robbie Stewart... Mm. Uh, and you had J.R. Foley and you had yeah, Frank, Gar I, give, Garfield Ports. Yeah, Robbie Stewart, I give, give a big shout out to Frank, um, Frank Cohn. Frank Cohn, right, yes. Because I, I wrestled Frank Cohn. Frank was really cutting edge stuff. If you watch him, he was very, he took the traditional style and added a different element to different things and was very, 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 and you know, went like a couple of things. It's funny because I, I was in a tag with him once. And I did something that I'd seen him do, and he went, oh, that's good. And I went, yeah, I stole it from you. Like, <laughs> I saw you do that when I was a teenager. And he went, oh, I forgot I did that. He used to come up with different things, you know, like, and, oh, you know, I, we pride ourselves in Britain on taking that nice swan kind of flip bump, mm -hmm. right? You know, and really being able to get the off. front flip yeah. off of arm twist or Twist, yeah. yeah. Well, and I, that was one of my that's things. Yeah. But Frank was the first person I ever saw. When he'd get whipped out, he would pancake straight down on it, on it, like really do it, you know, and just do different things and yes. always. So, but I know he, he, yeah, he, was, he, he had a good run in Calgary. I think he still he moves backwards and forwards to different places. But I know he lives. He's, he, he was in the prison service. I think he was oh, really? there for yeah. Okay. Um, so there was a lot of characters that went to Calgary, and, and you know, I've heard different stories. Like Ivan Penzikar. I don't know what he he, he was a. Um, referee when he was there, and Jeff Kay was another one. Jeff Kay was a referee when they went there, mm -hmm. um, but they were all old wrestlers, you know. Right. And and I know John Foley went and stayed, but like Ivan Penzikov, I've heard a lot of stories. A lot of stories I can't tell and hear about him. Yeah. Um, and and <laughs> that's the thing. I know a lot of stories I can't say anymore. The two biggest biggest names ever in my era of British wrestling, um, Big Daddy and, and Giant Haystacks. Let's talk about that. I was, just, I was literally yeah. just going to ask you okay. about Big Daddy and Giant Haystacks. So, because these are great stories. So, if you look nowadays, you go, what's that all about? But you can't imagine, because I grew up through this from the mid-70s, Big Daddy was a superstar of the highest order in Britain. You're talking Hulk Hogan in the 80s. Absolutely. Well, right? yeah. And people can't imagine it if because it, this was a man who was well into his 40s. He'd been arrested a lot of his life, but he'd packed it in. And then his brother, Max, uh, who was a good, was, was a very smart promoter. Max 
Crabtree. Max Crabtree. Ran, he ended up being the, as you call it over here, the booker for Dale, Dale Martins and then ran Dale Martins. It was called Joint Promotions, the company that had TV. Joint Promotions was consisted of Dale Martins, which was the biggest part of it, and there was still Rollwisco and Green. Rollwisco and Green was in the Yorkshire area, ran by a, a, a lady, a lady promoter called Anne Rollwisco, who was an absolutely lovely, charming lady. She'd inherited the business, and they just did certain areas by the time I came along. Before that, there was 12 at one time, 12 different companies. It was like the NWA. A part of, um, right. and, and they all got to have so many TVs, but it, it was either joint promotions, you were in that group, or didn't call it independent wrestling, the other promoters were called the opposition, or the outlaw, sometimes they call them out, yeah. the, the bigger ones were opposition, the smaller ones were called outlaw promotions. Um, but Max Crabtree took over, uh, Max used to be a wrestler, and there was three, three brothers, Max, Brian, who was a Started off as a wrestler, then a referee, then became the ring announcer. Um, and Shirley, Big Daddy's name was Shirley. Um, it, the part of Yorkshire that he's from is is it's just to that area, but it's one of those names like Leslie or Ashley that Shirley can be. Yes, it's just the. And unfortunately for him, because I know he, you know, I've, I've heard the story. He had to suffer a lot by the time he was named that. It had changed, and so he suffered a lot of not not nice things when he was younger because of having the name. Even the the family didn't have a lot of money, and they they were given Christmas presents by the Salvation Army, and, and he was getting uh, ladies, uh, the girls' stuff, and, that. and it's just a you know there's a lot of things going to it. But anyway, but Max Crabtree got he, he took over joint promotions. And again, I'm sure that some historians will have a better view of this. I've just got the restless sure, tail yeah, view or my view because I've actually been in the job and not having the statistics in front yeah. of me. So I apologise if I'm getting dates or whatever wrong. Or, you know, yeah. these stories are just how I've heard them. And brought his brother back, who'd pretty much retired out of wrestling. At, I think he was 40-odd, 40 45 maybe. And he, he used to look incredible. If you look up old pictures of him, he used to be a, a, a coast... Um, a lifeguard on Blackpool Beach, and he was called the Blonde Adonis. Mm. And he was in the Guinness Book of Records, I believe, and now that this is what I was told again, it might not be, it might just be myth, that he had, he was in the Guinness Book of Records for having the biggest chest to waist ratio. Oh, wow. A tight, compared with the yeah. size of his waist to how big his chest was. Right. Something like that. And you can, tall guy, he was right? tall, yeah, he was uh, probably 6'2", maybe 6'3". Oh, yeah. Well, by the time he was 45, he was heavy. And then he got heavier, purposely for the role. And his brother was very smart and made him into, do you know what John, John Bull is? John Bull is a, it's a, if you see like a lot of tourists get him if they go to, to England, it's like an old portly man who has got like a Union Jack, like old fashioned, you know, from the 18th century. It's like dressed like with an old hat and yeah, sure. it, basically represents Britain. It's yeah. called a John Bull character. You, that's why a British Bulldog, ah. a British Bulldog resembles the, the sort of character. Sure. So it's become, it, it's yes. all, in, it. again, it's just whatever. Yeah, that's a, part of England. Yeah, part of England. So this John Bull character, which was a big portly fella who could be your uncle or your next door neighbour who could take on the world. And he did. Mm. And they brought, everybody got beat by Big Daddy. Well, without 
a dragon, you don't need a dragon slayer. And they needed a dragon. And in Manchester, there was a gentleman called Martin Ruan, who for some reason used to tell everybody his name was Luke McMasters. And there's a lot of stories. And I, I, was, a, I was around all these fellas a lot. So, but he was known as Giant Haystacks. And although they never said it, and he always used to say, he, his family were from Ireland, but he was born and raised in Manchester. Uh, as far as I know, I could be wrong there. He could have been born in Ireland, yeah, yeah. but he, he was definitely raised in Manchester. And he was six foot 11, and he was about 30 stone at the time, which was what, 50? something like that. I mean, when I was wrestling him, and I wrestled him a lot, a huge amount when I was from like 19 onwards. Uh, in fact, I had my first match for WCW was in, at the Earl's Court in England. It was against him, and then they kept me for the week on the show. But it was to look at him, not to look at me. But he wanted to wrestle me because he knew I was the best. I was the fellow who was wrestling the most. And they, he was in WCW as the Loch Ness. Ness unfortunately, right, by yeah. the time he came over here, he was not in good health. Right. It was a lot. Of, it was very sad because he he wasn't. He, but, it, it was just in time. Prime, in his prime, he, if you go back and look, he was a big monster. Well. Without saying it, you've got the quintessential British fella against an Irish fella when there was wow. a war going on. Right. Right, IRA. IRA and, yeah, and, and Britain, that's another, another story, not my story right. to tell. <sighs> Couldn't get any better theatre, right? Mm -hmm. And so daddy would be on with whoever and they built up and they built up to confrontations and then daddy against giant haystacks sold out Wembley Arena. Wow. Um, huge. huge. And the match it was probably the be other people can tell you this, but it was a tipping point of it wasn't good. And then also not long after that they needed another monster and they brought in the Canadian guy. Who was Bill from America, John Quinn, mighty John Quinn, who was fantastic. And he was the first person who ever got on a microphone in England. And that's worth watching. If you want to see Heat, watch John Quinn's first. They give him, because nobody talked on so, so even Daddy didn't talk? Very, might say one or two words, to, to the, as the announcer was just, might say one or two, no interviews wow, at all. No, it was all, but, and if you listen, it's very well layered stuff. If you watch this, a lot of times now, you just watch the matches. You don't see the show. You mm -hmm. don't see the hour. Nobody sees the hour. There is one or two on, on YouTube, but you might, you, so you, you pick and pick the good matches. Well, there'd be a match on there, which would usually, it doesn't, whatever weight class would, to give, the, they used to say, to give the, keep the strength of the job, give the job credibility. So like the good heavyweights, when I say the, 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 the one, the, it's called the international heavyweights, that Terry, Pete Roberts, Dave Taylor, and, you know, I'm in that kind of mold. Thankfully, by the time TV had finished, I wasn't there yet. I was just getting there. So, but they were the ones, Ray Steele, another fantastic wrestler. There was a lot of them, really good fellas. Tony Sinclair, just really incredible fellas. But they'd go on and do like just aggressive wrestling matches. And it was to give credibility. And then if you haven't seen the show, you can go, well, this is maybe not the most exciting thing. It's not supposed to be, it's to give, keep, people believe in and then we can put more of an entertaining match on first and we can put a tag match on last or we can put daddy on last and because daddy was just a spectacle 
and he would come out, this big heavy fella, and he'd usually have the local high school uh, band playing him out and a song, We Shall Not Be Moved. I don't know if you've ever heard it. So he's coming out, We shall not, we shall not be moved. And if I, and, and just telling you that, right, when I got into wrestling, you, you know, you start learning things and you realise, oh, he's, he is what he is. And, oh, and even from 10, I, I used to be a Big Daddy fan when I was seven until I was 10. And then I saw Mark Rocco against Marty Jones and my life changed. And then I started watching who the wrestlers were. I thought I was outgrown that. First time I tagged with him at 18, I walked out and that music started playing and I was a little seven-year-old again. <laughs> and I was, because it, it was a spectacle. And I, I'm like, I'm a big daddy. I went all to Pete, like, oh. And I, I tagged with him for a bit. I was only work. I think I've told that tale before, but I only worked for him for three months and I realised I needed to go and work, get better somewhere else because yeah, I was yeah. stuck in that role. And once you were in that role, that was what daddy did, was being tags with a young baby face. Of you'd get in, get da 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 he'd get in, two belly butts, a splash, finish. Done. And so I quit at 18, I called Max Crabtree up and said, I'm sorry, Mr. Crabtree, I, I'm handing me notice and I'm going to work for Brian Dixon. He said, are you mental? <laughs> you, you, you're in the, on TV with, with our Shirley, you know? And I said, yeah, but I'm not gonna, and he went, kid, you gotta do what you gotta do, but it's the worst decision you're ever gonna make. Now, I don't, all that in a bad way, because within a year, he was calling me to go back to work for him then. I, I, it was the right decision. It was the right decision, because I, got, I went to work for Brian Dixon, and from night one, not only did he give me, like I went, I, I called Brian Dixon up and said, Brian, there's a lot of things that can be said about Brian. I've got nothing but good as far as the way he treated me. I called him up, I said, I'd like to go and work for you. Because Robbie was, uh, was already working for him. And Frank Cullen had, had put a word in for me. I talked to Frank Cullen. I was working for Joints and uh, for Dale Martins. And Frank had come on a couple of shows and I saw him. It was a Blackpool Tower. Again, everything starts in Blackpool. Right? Yeah. Um, and I said, he said, how are you doing, Darren? Because I'd, I'd met him a bit and I went, I've learned all this wrestling and now I'm just in this tag with it. He said, well, why don't, he said, I'll talk to Brian tomorrow. I know Robbie had already talked to him, but I was, you know, it was like tipping point. And I called Brian and I said, Brian, I'm, I want to come work for you. And he, Can I come and work for you, please? And, and he said, he said, are you mental? <laughs> he said, you're already on TV. I said, yeah, but I'm not going to get any better. I've, I've, I want to be a good wrestler. So, because I knew I could go places if I could, I'd, I'd learned all this wrestling from Marty Jones, like retraining me at 17. You can't do it if you've got nobody to wrestle with. Yep. If you're just selling, you can't learn you, your wrestling skills when you can't wrestle. People can't, you're not getting a chance you'll to put them on. The spotlight, really, it's, but, uh, it's I, I didn't care about the spotlight. It, yeah. You need the spotlight from a wrestling standpoint. Uh, yeah, yes, uh, yes, yeah, you're yes. right. Yeah, I, but that, like, that was never a thing for me. It was yeah. just getting, we talked about last time, that 20 years I wanted a career. Yeah, 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 yeah. I wanted to get good so I could go abroad and yeah. do these things, right? So, anyway, so that night, at Blackpool Tower, I'm in a tag match with Big Daddy. Now, I've just talked to Frank Cullen backstage, and I'm like, oh, Robbie's already asked me about going to work for Brian, because I'd, I'd met Robbie that, that same year. I, it's funny, I'd, I'd only met Robbie in 1986. We started the same place, but he went to work for Brian Dixon after a year, so we never met until 1986, and then I wrestled him for a week. We've, we, we know that story. and. But he was saying, oh, you want to come here because you'll get to wrestle better people. So Brian Dixon said to me, look, I can 
he said, I think, I don't know why you want to leave. He said, but I will promise you this. I will put, put you on with somebody better than you every night. And that's, that's what he did. And he gave me full-time work and paid me more money as well. I, it wasn't the money that I was after. From night one working for Brian Dixon, I was on with a fellow called Rocky Moran for about a month. Rocky Moran was trained by Fit Finley's dad. Mm. They trained together, Rocky Moran and Fit. Rocky went to, to Calgary. I don't know what he was called over he was there. Called, yeah, yeah he, he was he actually, I don't know if anybody knew what it was, but he used to wear, he's an Ulsterman. He's, he's a Protestant Irish. So he used to wear the Ulster stuff when he because yeah. i remember him coming back with, from calgary right. and he had knee pads because none of us had knee pads uh, oh where'd you get them from oh i got them from calgary <laughs> you know things that nobody used to go nobody used to yeah, have yeah. knee pads the fellas would come back from japan and then have like k and h trunks from america and oh I, pete roberts gave me my first pair of k and h trunks i was like, oh i was getting giddy like, you know i got like proper international trunks now so i'm in this tag at blackpool tower with daddy it wasn't a good night as far as the, the house. It was getting towards the end. It, this is September. Well, it's gales are blowing. <laughs> Blackpool's still open, but it, the wind's coming off the Irish Sea. It's yeah. There's maybe 150 people in, in Blackpool, which holds 1,000 people. Mm. And it's a circus, and it's, a built, it's an incredible built-up venue for wrestling. And they're not all sat together either, you oh. know. So I'm in this tag match, and I'm, I forget. I think it was Drew McDonald, and I, I know, definitely know the other person was Barry Sherman, great friend of mine from Blackpool. Used to wrestle as Rex Strong. Re two great big fellas, because yeah. Daddy was always on with big. Uh, usually, at least one big monster, and then it might be Sid, or it might be somebody to move around, or sometimes two big fellas. Yeah. So it was somebody, right? Against a cast of villains, shall we say? Well, it was two big villains this night, Drew and Barry. So I'm getting in there, I'm getting thrown about. By, well, Barry was a lovely, lovely man. He was nice to me when very few people were in this business. Right. When I was 16 and 17, when people wouldn't talk to me or didn't want me in the dressing room, he would. So I never forget him. But he was also, he was very gentle when he worked, right? So they're doing whatever they, to me. And he picks me upside down, as you call it, the tree of woe now. He puts me in, in their corner, hooks my foot all so nice and careful underneath the top turnbuckle. And he's giving me these stamps that couldn't have broke the skin on a rice pudding. You know, there's like just, like just these very gentle. Now, I'm upside down and I can see Daddy in the far corner. Now, Daddy was very, very funny. He, he had a very dry sense of humor. And I, he's leaning on the rope, just like with a look of sheer disgust in his face. <laughs> he was well into his 50s by now. Like, this was on the downslide of, of Daddy, right? Uh, this is 86, like September of 86. And he's just leaning on the rope, shaking his head. And Barry's like, Rex Strong's got to like stamp. And I don't, I can't even feel it. Just, I say, yeah, yeah, just like, tell <laughs> And I'm looking right at Daddy, and I'm, I'm like, oh, and I can see him just seething. And he looks at the front row, and there's like three or four old ladies, and he looks right at them. And I can see it from upside down. He went, he pointed at Barry and went, excuse me, madam, isn't he a lovely fella? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I'm quitting. In that moment, I thought, I'm on the fence here about whether I go or not. It's time to go. And I made the call to Ryan Dixon the next day. I made the call to Max Crabtree and quit. 
tell us quickly about Daddy backstage with uh, with, with giant haystacks, right? Oh, yeah. so this is again. So we've we've talked about Daddy and stacks, right? So the even me growing, I've I've been wrestling for you know I say when fifteen I was just doing little bits of things and, yeah, and yeah, but from sixteen I was yeah. well I'm by the time I got to work for Dale Martins, you know I was eighteen, and my first. I see it was my second show, but my first show that Daddy was on. It was in uh, in 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 North Wales. It's pronounced Landudno in Welsh, but it, British uh, the English say Landudno. It's a not, as again Britain used to be and still are, but they're not thriving resorts anymore. Before people started could go to Spain and Florida yeah, for yeah. cheap. The holiday, yeah, holiday cases. Right. So Blackpool stayed alive, and a lot of them didn't. But they became sometimes nice, sometimes not. Places to nice place to live because you're by the sea. Landudno is still a nice, it's a nice place to live, but it was a resort and people went there. It was a, a very genteel resort, so they ran show there. So I walk in at 18 and you think you know a bit of something, and I'm just sat in sat down in the corner. Well, next to me is Big Daddy and Giant Haystacks, and all of a sudden that you know it's a weird because right? I'm in the wrestling and I'm I've, I don't know probably. We talked about last time how many ri ridiculous amount of shows I used to do a week yeah, in the yeah, summer. Yeah, yeah. So I'd wrestled and been around the crew that I'd been around and I'd been retrained by Marty and I'd met Fit by then and, and all these. So I, I'm just sat, so you've got to imagine, I'm sat there trying, first of all, there's all this, this is, I've grown up with these two, hated each other on TV, right? And there's two huge men sat and they're, they're like, Ten foot away from me in this dressing room in Landudno, and I'm, just, and I'm, I end, ended up. It took me like as long as this went on. I, I'm having to pretend to tie my boots up because if I'd have looked at them, I'm, I'm sort of looking at the. I had to keep my head better because I just want to start laughing out loud, right? But I'm, I'm like a bit giddy. So they sat there, and all they did, like they were like two old women, talk about food, <laughs> and so Daddy, it's weird as big and as heavy as he was. And as old as he was, he was always talking about conditioning that because from his previous days. Mm. When he used to get to places like Landudno and that, that had a nice seafront, and people won't believe this, but it's true. He used to go out jogging mm. when he got to the show. And it was like, a, you know, that old man kind of, that mm. just you could walk faster than he could jog. But he would do it. He'd go up and down the seafront. And so he'd get back. And he was very, you know, clean, kept himself clean. So he's had a shower, and what do you? I've seen this a lot, and because I ended up working for him again years later, and when he was really old, and so I, I got to know him then. When I was a kid, like this first three months, I was just the kid, and that, that was it. Yeah. When I went back, when I was nineteen through twenty-four, I wasn't, and and so I, I got on really good with him, and he'd tell me all these different things, I can a lot of stories, but, yeah. but I was just a kid, and I was keeping quiet. I was in a new new working for a new company, keep mouth shut, sit there and do that. So Daddy sat with just a towel on him, peeling an orange. He's always had an orange or a tan tangerine, and he's peeling it. And uh, he sat there, and now Stax is sat in his thing smoking because he always had a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. And they just sat chatting, and this is the conversation. And I'm trying, I'm 18, trying not to laugh. Daddy always called Stax Luke, and everybody else called Daddy Daddy. So, Daddy went, what time did you get in last night, Luke? He went, ooh, 
about three o'clock, Daddy. He said, ooh, so did I. He said, and uh, I went into the kitchen and I opened the fridge and the wife, ooh, she'd baked a, a lovely, lovely, lovely strawberry flan. And, ooh, had she, Daddy? Yes, Luke, yes, she had. And I went up to bed and, do you, do you know, Luke, I, I just couldn't sleep. Ooh, why, Daddy? I, just the thought of it, so... And this is my favourite bit that was is absolutely... This might be a little bit distorted. This line isn't. He went, I tiptoed downstairs. <laughs> Imagine this 380-pound man tiptoeing anyway. I tiptoed downstairs and... Do you know, Luke, I, I was only going to have a slice, but... Ooh, I just couldn't... And I ate the lot. Ooh, did you, Daddy? Yes, I did, Luke, with, with a nice ice-cold pint of milk. Ooh, did you, Daddy? Yes, Luke. <laughs> and, oh, and so oh, he said, this morning, oh, the wife, she was mad. And, and, and Stax went, I bet she was, Daddy. But you'll never guess what, Luke. What's that, Daddy? Ooh. She's only sent me to work today. <sighs> with no sandwiches. And Luke went, oh, there's no need for that, Daddy. <laughs> and now I'm trying, I'm trying to do my boots up and I just want to just, I, I, holding, the, holding the tears back and the choking and laughing. So that was my introduction to them two and my oh, life went my on. And later on, I used to travel, and not, which was something else was odd. I used to wrestle stacks a lot. But he used to like travelling with me. And I used to go from Blackpool to, to meet him at, near where he lived in Manchester. And then we'd go in his car. He always had a brand new car. I thought the absolute world of Stax. Um, he, he was a wonderful fella. He was prone to exaggerate a tad, as quite a lot of wrestlers used to be. That was part of the gig at <laughs> yeah, one time. It still kind of is. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, because when you're that, that big, and by the time I was working with him and around him, he was 40 stone. Mm, he was huge. So we'd get in a car and it'd just be done in. You mean that he'd sit in the, the car seat. and just... And, well, yeah, so uh, he used to get about a year out of any car. Oh. You know, he'd, the seat would break instantly. It'd just mold to his body. <laughs> it, you know, I, uh, and again, I, I, this, no disrespect, absolutely no disrespect. No, but it's true. And he'd just break the seat, well... And he smoked in there, and, but he, he'd want to go, he, and he always... It's another thing, main events were never main events in, in Britain. They were always the match before intermission. That's a weird thing, but it was. Yeah. Always. Main event was always the match before and intermission. And what's the reason for that? So they could bugger off home. That's exactly right. Because <laughs> you'd earn the spot, you, you could go home. And then there was always like a, a tag match on at the end. or like a, They used to call it a send them home happy match. Mm. It was never really angles... Or if it was, it was before, it, like, what, different things that went on. But it was, although you go back to the same places, like, the seasons in England were, regular towns and cities were from September through May. And it was either every two weeks, every fortnight, or every month. Mm. Regular places. And then you'd have one-off spot shows. But there was a lot of regular places out there. Like, my local hall when I was a kid, which I went to from being seven, was Wolverhampton Civic Hall. You've played there. Yeah. Right? That's where the Slade room is. Home of Slade, right? yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> which is my favourite band. That's ever. right, yeah. Um, 
and that's why I call you Noddy. That's right. Right, because of sideburns. sideburns yeah. like Noddy Older. <laughs> right. So, and then, because there was a thriving in the up until like near the end of the eighties, a coastal scene in Britain of all these resort towns, that those shows would stop, and then from June and through the end of August, it would just be every week in a coastal town. Right. An occasional place like Croydon in London would keep running through the summer, but most places didn't because people, it was summertime. They weren't you home. Don't, you, and it's like I've heard the AWA didn't run in the summer. You don't get much sunshine living in England. Yeah. And if there's a nice bit of the slightest bit of weather, if it gets over 55 degrees, you're outside in your garden. You don't want to go out. Mm -hmm. So that was the way they looked at it. It's pointless running. We're not going to draw. But people go to the seaside. That's where you, go. you, you mm. went with it, your show. So I went to a lot of these things with stacks. Well, it was always on second. Depending on how many matches there was. Like, but sometimes there's only four matches. Oh, on. I see. So, but then I'd have to leave. I didn't like leaving, but he wanted to travel with me. I didn't like leaving because I like to watch all the matches. Sure. Right, I still do. I think it's just something that, mm -hmm. I, again, I said part thing, of our jobs. I don't know if I, even now I'm, I'm having to figure things out here. What if I have to do something with that person? I want to know what they yep, do. Of course, it's just doing your own work, right? It's part of the job. Absolutely, it, that never leaves me. I was right. always taught that. Again, I was around. I was, oh God, I was so fortunate to be born at the time, and you were as well because you got the, the tail end of that yes. being able to travel. You were fought you at the right time. That mm -hmm. couple of years, if we'd have been both been born three years or four years later, yeah, that could have made the difference. Of you, you look at the, the actual how fortunate we both were to hit the places we hit and to be hit them when there was all these old yep. pros that have been doing this for yep. twenty and thirty years that you yep. could we and then we get you you pick up the tricks. Mm -hmm. If that had been far, and, and definitely in England because the job completely changed by the time probably by 94 absolutely a lot of the people it was like these tribute shows going on so a lot of the fellas like fit and robbie and everybody had moved out of britain i had nothing to do with me i mean i just moved to america dave basically was just doing you know fellas were doing overseas there was things had gone different it was all changed in the 90s there was another group of people um a complete different group of people that kept it going you know, Doug Williams and, and, and Johnny Moss and all them fellas, they kept it going in the night and did all their thing. Um, but it was a different, it, they, they were sort of more influenced by Japanese and American wrestling and some British wrestling. You know, there's, there was obviously, yeah, of course. Was, but it was a, it was a different, like a I shift. remember when I went to Hamburg in 93, yeah. which I think is a couple of years after you went, yeah. it was the first year they stopped doing rounds. Right. Because Vince's TV was so strong right. in Germany, yeah. rounds looked like something from the, you know, yeah. 1500s. Yeah. Right, yeah, so that so was just yeah, yeah. the influence had changed. The influence had changed, yeah. yes, everything changed. So we got, you know, so when you're going to Mexico when you're working two mm -hmm. and three times a day and mm -hmm. getting, you know, going at the right time, it might have been two that's or three right. years later. We, we just, that's we, a great you point. You need to sit back sometimes and just go, wow. Like, yeah, we're getting older. It's the right time and the right, the right place. time yeah. for us. And also, too, one foot, a little bit longer for you because you started three, four years, five years before I did. But when I started, it was kind of the last vestiges of true kayfabe. Yes. Of just going into the ring and listening yes. to the vet and whatever happens, happens. That's so, obviously not like that anymore. No. But that's the way it was then. And you just did that. So I had that thing in me. And back to that of watching the match, I didn't like leaving early. Because once I got around Marty, Fit, 
Dave, Terry, Pete, Roberts, they always said, now you need to learn to be a pro wrestler who works, not the other way around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. that was what I became. Who do you feel the best? I mean, it might be hard to just pick one, but you just mentioned a list and you probably could pick any one of those. The, the, the best pro wrestler that, that the UK produced? It's, it's depending. <laughs> You're asking me for the best pro wrestler that the UK. I, I really couldn't. Is there a, a list? There's, there's, there's so many people who are influential. There's Rocco and Marty because they revolutionised the style. Unfortunately, that people give to other give to Tiger Mask and, and the high flying style. Uh, the the aggressive, quicker. quicker style of mixture of. Uh, if you watch them, that match of them from 1978, when they're do by round two and round four of, of the match, that you're going, oh, this is bef this is two years before anybody's seen. Mm -hmm. That same year, Dynamite was 16. Then he had his traditional British style. He was having he was seeing them, and then he went to Calgary and took that whatever he took there with him. Sammy Lee had come from Mexico, brought uh, like Sayama came to Britain. In, in the original in Tiger Masks. Yes. And, and had to keep up with Rocco and Marty. Oh. And Rocco and Marty hated each other and were trying to outdo each other. So that was why it looked so good. And, and then, but if you actually go and look at the origins of that, you can actually watch that match on YouTube now. Marty Jones and Mark Rocco. Mark Rocco from 1978 and watch it and go and take away that nobody had seen anything like this. It's, it's okay if you'd look at it from different eyes or you go, hang on. Yes. Right? Because Tiger Mask was still, well, he came to Britain, <laughs> typical promoter trick, he was, he, was, he was supposed to be Bruce Lee's cousin. Um, <laughs> Sammy Lee. Sammy Lee, right? <laughs> uh, and then later, um, Maeda came and was Quick Kick Lee. So he went to Japan, back to Japan. They made him into Tiger Mask. He brought Dynamite was over. Rocco was Black Tiger. Again, you don't need... A dragon slayer without a dragon so he had incredible and you know a whole list of, and Kobayashi and all them incredible people that that this thing but if you watch that and you go so that's an influence that's a huge influence on everybody that's come whether they know it or not mm -hmm. right because that's changed that's where people who weren't heavyweights could go out the country because up until then, as far as if you lived in Britain, right. Britain right, right. up until then, there was a, this, uh, this is a thing that is lost in, in history. Uh, and I think there's some stuff showed up lately in the, in the 60s. All the, the good British heavyweights went, travelled overseas, but a lot of the year was spent in Austria and Germany. Mm, as, right. you, as you know, you've done sure. that. In the 60s and 70s, the place to go for the for the lightweights and middleweights, which was most of British wrestling. You know, that's why I've, I, I have a very different outlook than a lot of people who, who are, and I don't want to say my size or whatever, but no, because I started off, I, it was perfectly, every, every weight division in Britain had a British, European yeah. and lightweight and world champion. And so everything works, mm -hmm. right? And it, it's not about big fellas, it, it just all has its place on it. So, right. And then if you had them wrestle each other, it would be a catchweight match. If it was somebody out of a different weight group against somebody else, it would call it a catchweight match and different things. But they sort of changed that. And then Dynamite obviously was incredibly, it's just in a different world of everything. So there's, you know, Billy Robinson, you've got to say Billy Robinson because he brought that 
heavyweight style and and there's probably people before him that there was people coming over here I, you know that Dory Funk has told me that his dad used to like the British fellas and bring them over to Amarillo um, and there's different people Ted Heath and different people that came over and stayed that Ted Heath stayed there Les Thornton as you know yeah. Les, Les came over you know you know Les is called the unmentionable right of course, but please tell them. All right, right. this is an old story. It's lost. Because <laughs> when I started in Calgary Ooh. on my very first Ooh. show, Les Thornton was on that show. Okay, well, I've never met Les. Okay. But, I mean, I watched a lot of Les's stuff. He's fantastic, incredible. Yeah. But that, that style that I've, I've sort of morphed into, it was, it was a certain things that you had, you had to be able to do all those certain things. Right. certain sequences of things but less he was became the, the you're not it's like the, the, okay, the, so, the thing that should so not be he <laughs> was every, you know silly superstitious I'm not superstitious at all I, I do have a rabbit's foot mm. do you know that no started off as an ingrown toenail anyway <laughs> here we go <laughs> no I'm not superstitious but when I came in the job because he was at, he, he'd made it right he'd gone away and mm -hmm. stayed away same with Billy they there was Tones like and call him the unmentionable. So I, you eventually ask, right? Well, you can't say his name. Why? Because something bad will happen. What? <laughs> yeah, he's a jinx. What? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you don't, don't, don't. That. And oh, I'm trying to think of his. He, he didn't wrestle as Les Thornton in Britain for at first. He wrestled as Henry something. It was a, he was supposed to be French. Ah. Uh. And they used to call him H. Was it HP? They'd say whatever is second in it, HP. Oh, <laughs> so so I've heard a few stories. Again, these are just wrestlers' tales, right. so it, it's it's a story of a story, and there's mm. probably maybe a grain of truth in it. But Skull Murphy, an incredible heavyweight from Britain, who was Finlay's tag partner, and they were a riot squad together. Somebody, who, another person who shaped me a lot, uh, just incredible. You watch him, just picture perfect heavyweight wrestler, incredible villain, looked like a wrestler, wrestled like a wrestler, yeah, yeah. fantastic. And I got to wrestle him a lot. And, uh, you know, all these fellas are just so fortunate to be around him and wrestle him. Another, and a great character. Well, Skull, he, he used to wrestle us, before he went to join promotions, he used to wrestle as bad boy Steve Young. And there was a, an American Skull Murphy, and because he, he ended up shaving his head, Max Crabtree went, oh, you know, like I ended up being Steve Riggle. He's, oh, oh, nobody's going to know. We're in England, in America, yeah, there's yeah, the yeah. name. That's how you end up with a name, somebody else's name. So, but Skull Murphy's dad was, I've never, I never met him, but Robbie has great fondness and great admiration. Uh, he was called Roy Ball Davis. And everybody I've ever met, and all the people, I've, everybody in the wrestling in Britain, incredible respect and admiration for Roy Ball Davis. So, this is just a story I've heard. It, it, again, it's what and, and Terry Rudge, I think, told me this. <laughs> so, there's all these things about Les being a jinx. So, one day, Les has gone up to, to Roy and said, can I borrow your can I borrow your car, Roy? You know, I've got a job tonight. No. Why not? Because something will happen to it. Don't be silly. You don't want to buy into all that nonsense, do you? No, you're not having it. Roy, don't be silly. It's not, nothing's going to happen to it. It's not going to happen. No. Eventually, he said, look, you're a grown man. You don't believe in all that. Right. Right. Look, here's, just look after it. It gives him the keys. So the next, this is the story I had again. It could be a complete... <laughs> They're from Plymouth, 
or he was down in Plymouth, something, and Roy's out Sunday morning fishing on the end of the pier. And Les comes walking along with his head down, car keys in his hand, and Roy's gone. Where's the car? Well, <laughs> you're never going to believe this, Roy, but I was driving along this country lane to wherever he was going, and suddenly a cow just jumped out of field and landed up on top of the car, and your car's right, right off. And he went, oh, for that's it. <laughs> He said, it doesn't... Don't, don't worry, handed him the keys back. Don't worry about it anyway, Roy. He said, my insurance will cover it. Smacked him on the back and knocked him over the rail into the sea. He went off the pier. And, so I don't know if that's true or not, but that's how it was told to me. And so there was this big thing. So I'm in the car one night. We got, I've gone to Bridlington. There's me, Marty Jones, King Ben, and his son, Mark McCoy, uh, Kid McCoy, who was me and Kid McCoy trained together at Marty's. We were right. the only two that stuck it out because Marty would run people off. Mm. And I was already wrestling. Marty, uh, Kid, Kid McCoy, if you go back and watch him, fantastic. He was a lightweight wrestler. One day he just had enough. He, I don't know what happened. I, I don't know. It was after I left. Me and him got on very well. We, we trained together for 18 months every Sunday. And he was he really is. Fantastic matches of him and Johnny Saint and Danny Collins. And it, all the, the, like, the really good yeah. fellas. He was really good. Far better than me. Again, another person. Like, they were all better than me. Robbie, Kid McCoy, Danny Collins, you know, Richie Brooks, another one. They were so much better than me. I just slowly came along. Yeah. So there's me, Kid McCoy, in the back. We're driving back, and it, it's a like a, what they call a dual carriageway in England. But so you cut four-lane highway here, right? Yeah, Is that what yeah. you cut? Yeah. And it's coming out of Bridlington. It's another coastal place, like, coming back to go to... Where me and where cars are to the meet, and Les's name comes up, and King Ben's gone. Oh, don't mention it, Marty. Marty has no. He just. Yeah. He is what he is, right? He's he's going. What? You don't believe in that old cobblers, do you? You know a lot of old nonsense. Cobblers means a lot of old balls, yeah. like yeah. a lot of old nonsense. You don't believe in that lot of old cobblers, do you? Oh no. And he's going. Les Thornton. Les Thornton. Les Thornton. Put 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 put. <laughs> Car stops right in the middle of bleeding nowhere. We're out in the middle of nowhere, and the car stops. And me, me and obviously me and Kid McCoy, right? We, we have to go and walk, and we had to go. It was like a mile. We found an old farm and got a can of petrol and brought it back. Run out of bleeding petrol, and so that was that's my less story. But that was what it was. It was like don't mention. So when I come over here, like people would, I I came over in '93 and. Again, another fortunate thing around the great people that would work through all the territories and that, you know, mm -hmm. Arn and Terry Taylor and, and Brad Armstrong and people. That, and, yeah. and I wrestled them and it was great. But they'd say, oh, do you know such and such? Because they'd met, they'd, they'd been there when the 70s and 80s, like Billy, Les, whoever else had come over. You know, there was different people that had come over. Tony Charles and, oh, God, yeah, remember? Yeah, yeah. There's another fella, right? Let's talk about influential for a second, right? This, this is why there's, there's these things. There's only two people in wrestling that have a sequence named after them. Yeah. Which is Dick Byer and Tony Charles. And they're the only two people. So you could, this is, again, giving away one of those things. To be able to go around the world when I was in, in the 80s, you had to know certain things. And you didn't, that's why you didn't, when you go, you could go out and wrestle anybody, but there was an international language of wrestling. 
and it didn't matter if you went to Japan, Germany, uh, on that side of the world yes. anyway. I don't know about, because I never got to go to England, Mexico. But, yeah, yeah. but if you were in England, Europe, anywhere in Europe, you had to know certain things. And there's obviously an inter international spot, right? But also Tony Charles spot and the Dick Byer spot. Do you know what they are? Well, first of all, the internationals tackle, drop down, down leapfrog, leapfrog, hip toss. Hip toss. Yeah, that's international. Right, international. Right. So that's one everybody knows. Well, Tony Charles spot is the Greco-Roman, I'm going to give it the proper term, the Greco-Roman knuckle lock, as Ken Walton oh. used to say. Down to a bridge, jump up, land on them, jump up, push them onto your feet, monkey flip over, float over, bring them over, and, and the into reverse. That's yeah. the Tony. And, he's, and there's, there's some great footage of Tony and Billy Robinson Actually doing that doing in Memphis, yeah, which Tony is. Charles. Yeah. Now, and what so, is the Dick Buyer? So, the Dick Buyer is that. Dave Taylor's. Of course, the, thing he's the that, destroyer, the great destroyer. The great yeah. destroyer. And that. Because he came to Europe and, you know, he was, but this was, he, you could just say this word to any of those yes. old pros and they knew, so that was it. You didn't have to know any language, you didn't have to talk to anybody, you could just go out and do this, right? Dick Byer, and that's the thing I don't see people do anymore, in the middle of the ring, just Edmare somebody. And I'm going to, hopefully this things tie in why some of us old people sometimes that look at this a bit different you shouldn't turn your back on somebody and run to the ropes not that you can't you can do what you want if it works but I was always taught the rope is a tool to propel you into your opponent so you can glance at it but you should know where that rope is if you want to get really good at your technical stuff if you turn your again people kept my work honest when I was mm. a kid if I turn my if I did something and turn my back I'd have Finley hitting me before I'd hit the rope, <laughs> would be behind me and hit me on the back oh, of the head. Don't the turn ring. your back on me, yeah. just to keep your work honest. So like with your pins, if you didn't have something on the shoulder, they'd lift their arm up. They're not gonna expose the strength of the job. I know it's different now, and but it, it makes sense. Just things, right? It makes sense. So Ed, just Edmare somebody in the middle of the ring, back into the ropes to give them a tackle. You can either use the ropes again, cause it's gonna propel you into them they drop down because they, they have no other choice. There's another reason. You don't just drop down for no reason unless you're going to do what Eddie used to do and throw yourself at their ankles on the ropes. You're trying to break their ankles in. If you're dropping down six feet away and I'm a trained professional fighter and I can't stop and kick you in the head, <laughs> yeah. eh, you know, yeah, it, which it works. It's, it's, it's no, all different right. forms, but this was what I was taught. Try to make everything mean something else. Don't bother doing it. So, Ed Mare in the middle of the ring, tackle either just run off and tackle or, or hit the ropes and tackle it was easier than them 14 foot rings in england yeah. then big runs you, you wouldn't you'd, you would just admire them and just take two or three steps back and tackle them take two or three steps back person looking see that they can't do anything to you because you're coming too fast and drop down to avoid the contact mm. right mm -hmm. and your your body your body motion it makes you hit the rope you come back towards them, they're still in a position where they can't do anything to you, so they leapfrog you and show off their incredible leaping skills and athletic ability, and they're not just leapfrogging you because they can. And then they lock eyes with you, and as you're running back, that, this is not the spot, but as now I've locked eyes with you, and you're running at me full pelt, and now I can either drop kick you or back drop you, and there's nothing you can do because you, you, mm -hmm. the ropes have propelled you into it. Right. That's how you make things mean a bit more.
Yeah. You can just do them, and as long as it works, it works. But if you want to get, some people don't have that ability, and if you you need to work on little things that will make people notice you more. That's my. You know what you told me that, that I still use this day. You probably told me twenty five years ago, probably nineteen ninety six, ninety seven. Is whenever I drop down, I always hit the mat because yeah. you said if you don't make a sound, people can't people feel it. People can't feel it. If you watch your great favorite fight scene in a movie and turn yeah. the sound down, it doesn't have much effect. Yeah, yeah. I still think of you. Yeah. Every time I do that. Yeah, right. You and, but you, also, you don't drop down the middle of the ring. You throw yeah. yourself at the feet. Jump right? forward, yeah. Because that's it. You're either trying to take their ankles up. Because when people I ask, why do you drop down? They go, I'm going to trip you. Well, yeah, if you're like Eddie, you're trying to trip me. Yeah. But if you're five, six, seven, ten feet away from me and I can't stop and kick you, <laughs> it, it, it's, you know what I mean? Yeah. I just try to make give people reason again. If it, you don't need to, you don't have to worry about it. You can do it all day long, and it, rightly so. It's just different flavors. I just know that I had, I haven't got I haven't got your ability to leap on the middle rope and do a drop kick out. Mm. I had to work on detail, mm. and some people do, and some people don't. And if you don't, good for you, because you won't have to agonize over all the details yeah, that I yeah. had to agonize to keep a job, because that's mm. what kept me around, right? So anyway, Dick Biospot, <laughs> Edmare somebody, tackle them, drop down, leapfrog, reverse monkey flip. Dave Taylor used to take this perfectly. Reverse monkey flip as you get up by the ropes, drop kick, go over the top rope backwards. Interesting. Yeah. That's also a spot that they, they use. Eddie used to use it. Eddie used to, in Mexico, yeah. they right. used that. So yeah. probably got it from Dick and he went to Mexico or whatever it may be. Whatever. He yeah. traveled. Don't forget, a lot of Mexican guys went to Japan. That's, yeah, was, yeah, 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 Japan yeah. was the melting pot That's for right. a lot of people. Calgary was mm -hmm. and Japan was. Mm -hmm. And England for a, a bit. And, and Germany as well, you know. Yeah. There's these places where people had turned up. Yeah. So, oh, lightweights. Back to that, I remember. So all the heavyweights used to go to Austria and Germany. In the 60s and 70s, the lightweights and the middleweights, because... The, summertime they went to spain and france spain and france ran constantly and it was basically the same life that we had in germany not as much it wasn't tournaments where you were in the same building every night but you could take a, a caravan a trailer over there park up in somewhere in france in a on a beautiful campsite with a lake and, and a swimming pool and you could just drive and and it was so johnny saint used to go to either spain or france for the summer as things change a bit later on, but if the 60s and 70s, if you look at a lot of the bills in the summertime, we've talked about the summertime shows, yeah. it's usually the fellas on them that couldn't get booked overseas. Because if you could get booked overseas in the summer, you would be gone. You wouldn't be Because you wouldn't be making yes. five times more money than yeah. you could in Britain. Well, that makes sense, though. Makes sense, right? That's fair to say, yeah. But Johnny Saint you tells, used to tell me about that. Again, I'm passing on stories of stories. This is how it was told to me by a fellow called John Harris, who was a, an MC for Dale Martins and then for Brian Dixon. And he was around a lot of stuff. And he used to go as a referee. A lot of them used to go over there. As, um, anybody that could go somewhere in the summer make more money, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know what happened to France, but this is what I was told about Spain. Because I went to, to France in 1988 in the summer. I just got a call out the blue. France hadn't run for years. I just no, I hadn't heard of it in the eight. All the way through the eighties, I'd never heard of anybody. No, nobody yeah. went to France. I got a call from Anne Ralph Wisco, the promoter. Um, could you go over to? I was going to. It was my first year going to Hamburg, so I was going there in September, and I was just Good filling friends, out the yeah. summer, working on holiday camps yeah. and whatever, or for Brian Dixon, whatever. I was working a lot, but 
because it was a wasn't a fixed regular. If it was the winter, I wouldn't have liked asking. But because it didn't really, the yeah, summer sure. was not. It was a, a, a one week crowd, if yeah. you know what I mean. Oh, I've just been asked. Can I, whoever I was working for, I've just been asked by Anne if I can go to. France. Of course you can. Yeah, go make some money. And I ended up going for. It was six five day trips. I'd go for five days and fly back to Manchester and and uh, do a couple of shows because I, I, I had so much work. I could work in Blackpool yeah, 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 three yeah, or four yeah. nights a week and, and work at the, the at the amusement park on a Saturday and Sunday. Do like between two and three or four shows a day there, and then right. a, a show on Saturday night at the Sandcastle in Blackpool. A show on Sunday night thirty miles up the coast in Morecambe. It was ridiculous mm-hmm. the amount of shows we used to have. So. I was going backwards and forwards all summer. I did six weeks in France, and there was some of the fellas. Whew, some of them red reels. It was just different. Yeah, and they didn't like the term. But like, we're not like we're, we're artists, yeah. you know, and there was not a lot of skin contact. Yeah, <laughs> and it was all very nice, but I was heavyweight mode then, or physical mode, right? Yeah, and that, I, was, you know. I, <laughs> To me, it was exposing the strength of the job because yeah. uh, it was drilled into me about that. But I've, I fit in there, you know. Again, you just fit in, and and then there was a, a few fellas that were, and then there was a few good. There was a few that again, Germany. Some of them went to same right. as everywhere. Sure. So there was this group. Me and Richie Brooks spent the summer there, which was good. But this is I don't know how France came to an end in the seven end of the seventies. But this is what I heard about Spain. I was told it happened over about a month. It had run there for two decades. And in the same month, they put a entertainment tax on the tickets. Right. Which like doubled or tripled the prices. And also there was a long running soap opera in, in Spain. And they introduced a character which was a pro wrestler. And they exposed all the tricks of the business, oh. and people just stopped going. Wow! And that's what I was told, and I don't know what's right yeah, and what's yeah. wrong about that. I'm sure somebody else will know better. Some historian will know better. But that's basically how, how it came. So, wow. you, is it a light heavyweight? You're going to say? Or you got a last? No, you, you were on about about the, the best person to come out of England. Oh yeah, yeah. There's too many of them, and you yeah. can't. There's, there's so many different. You got to go with Billy. You got to go with Dynamite. Personally, the, I've said it before, me and Fit Finley will tell you the best person we ever wrestled was Terry Rudge. Mm-hmm. But he's a wrestler's wrestler. Yeah. Right? The, you know, um, Pete Roberts was another one. A re- wrestlers will tell you he was the best. And, and if you watch Pete and Terry, you will see me. Yeah. Because yeah. that's my style, yeah. my original style, and I added the character to it. I based myself, my heavyweight style is based... You can see influence their, their influence on me. That's where it come up. So I can't. I'm not going to get anybody. I'm not into arguing. Everybody deserves. I just want to say thanks to every single one. Every single Brit. You got me choked up again here because without the, there is no one person to me. It's every single person. Every person who was in the wrestling before me. They. I wish that I could give them like an award in front mm-hmm. of because without them there mm-hmm. wouldn't be me. They're the ones who captivated a young child's imagination and made me have this charm life that I've had. And that really, it, every single one of them, I hold up there, whether I liked them or not, and when I met them, it doesn't matter because wrestling captivated my life. And it's given me, it really has given me a really charm life. 
Did I just old man you again? You have. You have. You've old man me. <laughs> Swine. You, you want to end off with a joke? No. No? Yeah. Okay. Uh, stupid joke, but it's, <laughs> you know, I can't, well, you know my joke. Yeah. I can't tell any of them. I get banned from everywhere if I tell any of my jokes now. <laughs> so, this is a really ridiculous joke. So, there's this duck walks in a pub and he, he looks up at the bomb and he went, Pint of Guinness, please. And the barman goes, oh, 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 a talking duck, a talking duck. He said, where, where have you come from? And the duck went, the construction strike across the street. And he went, you should be in the circus. And the duck went, why would the circus need a bricklayer? Anyway, <laughs> so... Oh, right. man. Always, this is awesome, man. <laughs> <laughs> what more do you say? Right, that's it. <laughs>